it's nice to uh, see everyone at church tonight. Hope you've had a good week. Uh, I am indeed now 40. Uh, having already gone grey and bald in my 30s, I don't really know what my next decade's got in store for me, but it's going to be good. Um, at least I still look younger than Clayton, so that's good. <laughs> uh, it was... Um, it was fun to, to kick off Alpha this week. We had a really good time up at the church. Uh, we had lots of, lots of guests. Uh, I slightly undercated, so we had to ration the freshy chicken. But uh, it was a good time. This Wednesday night at 7 o'clock is the last night to get involved at Alpha. So if you'd like to do the course, come along and you'll meet some great people. We had a great time last week. Also, tomorrow morning, 10.30 a.m., Sterling and Kim get married here at the church. So come on. Eloise's dad. Um, I realised after writing my message that it was more like a best man speech and less like a sermon. So <laughs> I had to kind of go back and write it and make it a bit more. Anyhow, we're ready to go. 10.30 tomorrow morning. So if you're kicking about and got nowhere, nowhere to be, feel free to come on up to the wedding. Um, you'd be very welcome. Uh, it's going to be a big celebration. All right. Uh, the last two weeks, we have uh, kicked off our new series in the book of Ephesians, and I thought it'd be fun to spend some more time talking about predestination tonight. Uh, no, let's not do that. Um, but Ephesians is about knowing the story that then changes our story. It's about knowing the gospel, and then in light of knowing the gospel, how then are we to live? Um, we've already met Paul. Uh, heard about his remarkable conversion story, his ministry to the Ephesians, and then writing from jail in 62 AD, uh, he writes to this church that he had helped establish over two years of ministry. And so that's the letter. That's where we're up to right now. We've moved from the yellow bit to the purple bit. And um, this remarkable introduction to the big themes of the gospel that we get just in these very first verses. Uh, we've been introduced to themes like grace and peace, being in Christ, being adopted into the family of God. And this week, a little bit simpler, but no less profound. In fact, I think amazingly profound. We're going to look at redemption and forgiveness, uh, one of the glorious riches that we have in the gospel. So let's read Ephesians 1, 3 to 8. Uh, like a good Pat Cummins delivery, it needs a little bit of a run up to get into the verses that we're uh, going to do tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, feel free to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're particularly looking at verses 7 and 8, but starting at verse 3. The Apostle Paul writing from a prison cell in Rome to the church in Ephesus. Verse 3, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Amen. So focusing on verse 7 and 8 tonight, we have redemption in Christ, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul, in listing the glorious riches of the gospel that we have in Christ and the good news of our salvation, he lists in this one carefully constructed long sentence different aspects of the good news. He says, we, we who now live in Christ, we who live in Christ are so blessed. We are richer than we could ever imagine. Dear church, in Ephesus, remember that we are redeemed and forgiven. Now the word redeemed is not just another synonym for salvation. The word has a particular meaning. Our redemption is a particular element or kind of our salvation. The Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris notes that when we heard the word redemption, we think of it in kind of religious terms. But when these first people were listening to this word or this letter in 62 AD, they would have thought about that word redemption in non-religious terms. The Greek word redemption is apolotrosis. The verb form of the word simply means to loose. To be redeemed is to be loosened. So they'd use this word, apolotrosis, to refer to the loosening of clothing or the loosening of tied up animals. But it was particularly used in the common vernacular to refer to the loosening of human beings who found themselves in some form of captivity to another. One of the great desires of the ancient world was to be redeemed. To be loosened from slavery. Or as a prisoner, to be loosened from jail. To be loosened from oppressive debt or from a government. And the word normally referred to the loosening happening through some kind of payment. Someone would pay the price for you to be redeemed. Loosening came with a cost. In the Roman Empire, it's been estimated that up to 60 million people lived as slaves. You know, that's why we get behind Homes of Hope. That's why I want to see you there this Friday night. Because there are people still in slavery around the world today. And we want to play our part in seeing people get redeemed and loosened. But in the Roman Empire, 60 million people lived as slaves. Individuals created in the image of God were treated like property, not much better than a piece of furniture or a prized cow. They could be bought, they could be sold like any other commodity or piece of property. If you've seen the movie The Gladiator, you know what I'm talking about. And so it was a glorious thing to be redeemed, to be loosened. If you were purchased out of slavery and set free, if you were loosened from ownership by another. So hear the verse again. In Him, in Jesus... You have been redeemed. You have redemption through his blood. One of the glorious riches of the gospel is that you have been loosened. 
what you are oppressed by, what you are captive to, what you have been a slave to, you have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And one of the deepest longings of the human heart is to be loosened from all that holds us captive to be set free. And it gets played out, does it not, before our eyes all the time. Whether what we see in Myanmar at the moment and people longing to be politically free or here closer to home to be free from debt or free from addictions or free from anxieties and worries or free from a controlling relationship. But especially, I would argue, we long to be free from the human condition and sin. And so the words in this verse point us to the human condition, but for the grace of God. It suggests that we have redemption, pointing us to the fact that aside from grace, that we might not be in a prison cell, but aside from Jesus, we are in bondage and kept captive. Unless we are loosened or released from this bondage, we cannot enter into an experience of our adoption into God's family. In order to be a child of God, we need to be set free. You know, I think sometimes we think evil is just kind of out there somewhere. You know, that, that maybe evil belongs to an ideology or a political party or a particular leader. Or we safely put ourselves on the side of the solution. You know, we think, I'm not that bad. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't really have a, a problem here. All the while maybe minimalizing the condition of our own heart. I found the author of the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian political prisoner, helpful in this. From jail in the Soviet Empire in the 1960s, he wrote about where true evil exists. And he said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Sometimes I think coming to terms with this is the first step in our redemption. We need to realise that we are captives, that we're not truly free in our current state. In another letter, the Apostle Paul, how's this for humility? He would say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You know, that's the great Apostle Paul. He says, you know, I'm the worst of sinners. I know the state of my life aside from Christ. And so our redemption from sin comes with the realisation that we need to be free. We need to be freed. Maybe the answer to our problems isn't a bigger home or a different job or a more fulfilling relationship. Maybe the answer to our problem is dealing with the state of the human heart. Now, this is not something that Paul makes up. You know, there are, there are people out there who say, you know, Jesus was great, but then Paul made up Christianity. And I, I think that's a really wrong path to go down. Because when Paul talks about redemption, he's picking up on a theme of Jesus that he talks about all the way through his ministry and life. Luke 4, Jesus says, He has come to set the oppressed free. John 8, Jesus says, All who sin are slaves to sin, but whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. On seeing Jesus, John the Baptist declares the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. 
But let's just pause there for a second because there's a lot in those verses. But I want us to see that Jesus was all about redemption. He came to set the captives free. And I think in those three verses from or about Jesus in the Gospels, we see redemption worked out. We see the problem, the solution, the means and the result. The problem is all who sins are slaves to sin. That's everyone. The solution is Jesus saying, I have come to set the oppressed free. The means is is he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the result is whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So back to Ephesians 1.7. Through his blood, through his shed blood on the cross, that is what redeems us. That is what loosens us from our captivity to sin. It loosens us from all that held humanity captive. It frees us from the curse of the law. It liberates us from the compulsion of sin. It loosens us from the powers of the spiritual forces at work in this world. From the lies that ensnare the human heart and mind. And it frees us from the finality of death. And therefore the fear of death. Jesus' blood shed on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God pays the price so that we can be loosened. Are you with me? Now, I'm not that great at talking about blood. Uh, In fact, I remember year eight woodwork at Knox in my boater. I was looking cool. I remember I cut my finger on a saw You're going to be so proud of me here, Murray. And I saw some blood on my finger. And then and there I just fainted. I just hit the ground hard. (laughs) Off to the nurse's office. So a career in medicine was never on the cards. So I don't don't find talking about the mechanism of what happened on the cross particularly easy. But Paul tells us here that it is the blood... That Jesus shed on the cross that pays the price that redeems us. Amen? And if we should understand this if we are to know the glorious riches of the gospel. And the key to that verse is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who pays the price. Uh, you guys have been around the church for a while. You know in the Old Testament, a spotless lamb would be sacrificed to make amends to God for the wrong that we have done, Right? A price would be paid, a sacrifice would be enacted, and people would be right with God. It was a price in one sense that was paid to show their contrition. And what the Old Testament sacrifice, though, could never do was deal with sin once for all. Because sin always has a way of still rearing its head in human's life. And so Jesus, in offering himself himself as a spotless sacrifice for the sins of the world, accomplishes once and for all what the Lamb in the Old Testament could never do. That's why in Mark 10, 45, Jesus, knowing his redemptive mission, says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that his mission in life was to come and to pay the price so that us captives could be set free. He comes to be the great ransom of humanity. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
in love, he gives himself on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and become a child of God. And now part of the meaning of the word redemption is we now belong to him. You see, sin is no longer our master. We don't stay as captives once Jesus Christ has paid the price and we have appropriated that in our lives by confessing him as our Lord and Saviour. He now owns us. We are not owned by sins. We are not slaves to sins. We belong to Jesus Christ. I am his. You are his. When we confess he is Lord, we come into a new kingdom with a new family, with a new inheritance and a new destiny. And that's why, you know, as we're going to learn in the letter to the Ephesians, we're going to get there. He's going to talk about all that God's done. He's going to get to your life. But you are going to get a new power in your life to live free. We are richer than we think. And so that leads to the fact, verse 7, that we have the forgiveness of sins. Now, again, that's not just a different meaning of the word redemption. It's not just a different word that we can swap in and out for salvation. But again, it is an aspect of our salvation that leads us to join Paul in verse 3 in saying, praise be to God. Because forgiveness is about relationship. Anyone married here know that forgiveness is not a bad key to relationship? You see, you could get released from captivity but still not be in relationship. Someone could pay the price to get you released from jail and then walk away and still want nothing to do with you. Forgiveness is about restoring the relationship for our past sins and trespasses. Now, there's three main different words in the Bible to talk about this. Three words used to describe the human condition apart from the grace of God. Sin... Transgression and iniquity. We're getting a bit heavy tonight. That's okay. Stay with me. We find sin, transgression and iniquity in Psalm 32 where King David confesses his adultery and is forgiven. Psalm 32.5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sin, transgressions, and iniquity. If you want to understand the human condition or your captivity, it's good to understand these three words. Sin refers to missing the mark, right? Like an archer will aim an arrow and they'll miss that mark. Does that resonate? Does anyone kind of set moral standards for themselves or read stuff in the scriptures and, and you miss the mark? Just me? But sometimes we know the right thing to do, and yet we just can't do it, can't quite hit it. Transgression means to cross the line. We come to a fence with a sign that says no trespassing, but we go, don't we, where we shouldn't anyhow. We overstep the lines and the boundaries within which God says, this is where you will thrive. John 10, anyone? You know, come in, come into the gates, come, this is where you will thrive. Know my voice. But we, 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 we trespass, we go over the lines that God has given for us. And that for King David, it was serious. It meant he slept with another man's wife. He, he, he stepped over a line he should never have gone over, right? Here's the most interesting one to me, iniquity. Because iniquity 
is the thing that's in us that makes us miss the mark and cross the line. You know, that's our twistedness. It's our perversion. It's what makes us want to cross these lines in the first place. Our iniquity is our fallen nature that leads us into the mess in and around us. You're hearing Paul in Ephesians now? By his blood, Jesus rescues us from this iniquity. He releases us from its terrible grip on our hearts and minds. By his blood, he erases our sin and he wipes it clean. And by his blood, he forgives our trespasses. God does not hold it against us anymore. And so by his blood, we can be brought back into relationship with him and our heavenly father. I want to finish there. There's a lot in Ephesians, right? We could probably spend the next five years here, but we're going to go a little bit quicker from next week on. But just to close, imagine with me, if you will. Paul's sitting in his prison cell in Rome, 62 AD, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus that he had seen established from nothing over two years of ministry. Dear friends, dear friends, You who have come out from under the grip of worship to Artemis, the god of fertility. You who have come out from under the control of Caesar, who demanded that only he be Lord. You ordinary men, you ordinary women, you Jews, you Gentiles, each with your own stories and challenges and circumstances and messes and all that in your lives. And he reminds them. He reminds me, he reminds you of the glorious riches of what God has done through Christ in their lives. Now, Paul's going to get to how you live your lives and what will help us. But as we start Ephesians, he wants you to know deeply that God has given you grace and peace. He has chosen you. And adopted you into the children of God. Into his family. He has redeemed you. He has loosened you from your captivity and slavery to sin. And he has forgiven you of all your iniquity. Through his blood shed on the cross. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Amen.